You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. We've been talking uh, lately about the gospel, which in case you don't know the trick, it's what we do every single week here. Um, But we've been especially focused in on trying to give some definition to what is the gospel, this word that we hear a lot. I've uh, started this whole series by saying how I was haunted by um, a, a kid in the Bible Belt where we used to live that just point blank asked me, what is the gospel and trying to say, here's, here's what that is to try and turn and describe it to him. And I think every Christian needs to be able to know this is what it is. And although, although we could keep studying it forever and not plumb the depths of all its impact on our life, there's, we've been looking over the past several weeks at just different specific ways that this message of the gospel affects us on a day-to-day basis. So um, what is the gospel? The gospel is, it's this word euangelion. It is first and foremost, it is news. It is good news. It is news about what Christ has done on our behalf. It is Christ going and paying the payment that you and I could never ever pay. It is us receiving that gift by grace through faith. It is news about God rescuing humanity from our sin. It is forgiveness, but it's forgiveness like, like no one else. I, I don't care how good of forgiver you are or how good of forgiver you knows. God is better. If you remember the hymn I showed you a while back, what though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. My sin, oh, the bliss of the glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole Nailed to the cross, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That God is a forgiving God. That's the only chance that we have. And the gospel says that Christ came so that we might be forgiven before God. But there's a lot more to it as well. The gospel alone gives us great purpose in life. It gives us a great cause in life. It eases our worry and our stress and it brings us peace in life. The gospel, even in the deepest of grief, We can have a glimmer of joy in knowing this truth that God hasn't forgotten us, that God loves us, that God hasn't, um, that he will not neglect us, that he has forgiven us. The gospel emboldens us. It helps us see our own significance. It's not, if I achieve, then I have some kind of value. If I get married, if I have kids, if I get into college, if I finally make mom and dad proud, then all of a sudden I have some kind of value. The gospel says you have value inherently because Jesus Christ died for you. That's what the gospel says. See why all this matters? You, if, you, um, if you ever get caught in the performance trap, the gospel says you're enough. If you care about what other people think about you, the gospel says the God of the universe gives you his thumbs up because of his son Jesus Christ and what he has done. So you can relax. You can let your guard down. You don't have to fake it. You are fully accepted by God. Or we talk about um, the, uh, wanting to make the world a better place. I want to serve people for real. I want to love people for real. I can do that because God has served me in a greater way than I ever could. He has loved me, and so at filled with the love of God, now I can go into the world and let it overflow to the world. This is the way the world is changed. The gospel reminds us we're a part of an eternal higher kingdom, higher than any other kingdom on earth. The gospel gives us a place to go with our inevitable sin in our life instead of just sort of grin and bear it or just feel guilty or just sort of try and pay the price on our own. We can go to almighty God with his arms wide open to be forgiven for our sin. 
And then the last couple of weeks, we've talked about in the mystery, what do we do? The gospel gives us the answer. In mysteries of life, we remember who God is and what he has done. Like, see why this matters? Like, this isn't just about, like, someday. This is about someday, but it's also about today. And then the real kicker is, and I'm going to put an asterisk by this, it's free. Here's why I'm putting an asterisk by it. Like, if my son said, I want to buy a new TV for downstairs, Dad, and he saved up, let's say he saved up, like, $2,000, and he says, I'm going to get a $2,000 TV for downstairs, and I said, that's your money, you can do what you want. And then we go to wherever, and we get a TV, we get 2000 and he gets up there, and he's $1,999.99 with tax, and he goes, whoo, I saved a penny here, too. And so he's got his TV all picked out, we go, and um, we're going to check out, and I say, you know what, buddy, you keep that money, I'll pay for this. And so I buy his TV for him. And then we go home and he sets it up and he's, thanks dad, he loves it and loves it and loves it. I'm talking about him like he's four, he's a teenager, like thanks dad, sorry. We're downstairs and he, he, he loves this thing and he's watching it and, and then he's over with one of his friends and they go, wow, that's a really cool TV and one of his friends doesn't have a good filter and goes, how much did that cost? Imagine if my son went, oh, it was free. I might be a little hacked, huh? It was free to him but I paid for it. Our salvation is free for us, but Christ paid for it. Amen. And so it's kind of interesting, like I started this whole little mini series by talking about that sometimes we just think it's about heaven someday, we just think it's about the future. And if you've been paying attention, we haven't talked about that yet, but we are today, because it's the most glorious truth the world has ever known, that we have an eternity assured. Eternity assured. And I will start this by saying that everybody's going to live forever someplace. And Christians, I want you to see the promise of what is offered and the, um, the assured future for the Christian. And so, yes, we're in the book of Revelation. We'll be at the very end. But I want to give you the bookends briefly because you've got Genesis chapter 1. You've got, in the beginning, God created, remember this, the heavens and the earth. And then it says the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. So this is like one big thing of water, it sounds like. The spirit of God was hovering above the face of the waters. And then on day one, he separated the waters um, above and below. And then he separated them into seas and oceans and things. That's the beginning, and we're going to look at the very end. But if you remember, God created everything in this Garden of Eden, and it was amazing. Yet, Satan entered. Sin entered. He tempted Adam and Eve, they fell, and so our world is now stained by the fall. Fellowship with God was broken, and it wasn't possible in the same direct way that it was with Adam and Eve just directly in his presence. And so even from the very beginning, you see how beautiful it was, then all of a sudden everything breaks, and then God right then, in Genesis chapter 3, he gives what we call, it's the term is the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. It is the first declaration of the gospel, Genesis 3.15, when he says that one is going to be born of, not man and woman, but born of woman that will crush the serpent's head. And so that's a foreshadowing of Christ, what he would do, what he would come to do, what he did on the cross, and what he will ultimately do one day when he returns. And so we have this image of like going, going back to Eden to go, wow, that's better than, better than where we were now, like before fall and everything, just don't eat the fruit and we'd, you know, we'd be in Eden and that would sound pretty great. 
But one of the things he's trying to do in this in Revelation is he's going to talk about eternity. He's going to talk about new heavens, new earth. He's going to talk about eternity with him and say it's so much better. Revelation 21, he says, remember in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth and there was this deep there as well. In Revelation it says, John getting this, uh, this vision, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea, which was this idea of chaos, is no more. So the parallel you can see to Genesis, creation, recreation. He says, and I saw the holy city. This is John getting a glimpse of what this will be like. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He couldn't give a more, uh, a more striking way to say the beauty of what he is saying. A bride adorned for her husband. And then, and then if you've been to Rockland, um, you might remember over Advent we did a series called Emmanuel, God With Us. And it was this theme. It was um, perfect fellowship in the garden, then broken. But you see, God hasn't abandoned his people, that he still is with us until he finally returns and will ultimately be perfectly with us again. Look at this, verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. How about that? The presence of God restored. And it's not just that. It's what is he going to do? Look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is symbolic language. He's not saying that you're going to be in heaven and you're gonna be bawling and sad, but don't worry, he's gonna come and be like you know the, the papa that comes up and wraps his arm around you. He's gonna say that there's no crying in heaven. This is symbolic language. Look at this. I heard a lot, uh, he'll wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying. There won't be any crying, nor pain anymore. There won't be any pain, for the former things have passed away. So you get this image of no more tears, no more crying. The worst that we can possibly imagine, he says, that will not happen. And so what's fair to assume is to say, nothing bad will ever happen here. There will be no stress in heaven. Think about that. We, we're uh, down here, we're filled with stress. We're filled with worry. I mean, we even, like I see, I know people that worry about worrying. Like, you go, everything's fine right now, but I'm sure something's going to come up. And so they're stressed about something that's going to come up. Like, we did, um, we did a while back, Nikki and I did a, um, we did a couple's massage. I don't know how I feel about that, but we did a couple's massage. And uh, at first, I was sort of, I was really, like, tense as, you know, I'm trying to get massaged. And, and then finally, I just sort of relaxed. And, and then I just was totally relaxed. I felt like I almost fell asleep, but just, I felt like I was just, you know, falling into this table and just like one with the table or something. I don't know. Like I just felt so incredibly relaxed. And they've got all the music and the smells and all that stuff going. But there's still something in my mind that says, this is a little respite for me. And then I'm going back to the real world. And here, he says, this is the new real world now. Can you imagine no more stress, no more anxiety, none of that? No health concerns, no financial concerns, no relationship concerns. That's the eternity that awaits. And how in the world can he do this? And the answer is because he's reigning. It says, he who was seated on the throne. 
He's the only one on the throne. He said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Any other concocted plan of salvation or any image of the afterlife is some man-made thing from people that have lived here maybe for a few decades that have come up with some system that they think works. And what he's saying here is this is trustworthy and true. I am seated on the throne. And he says, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. I'm the alpha and omega, the A to the Z, the beginning and the end. So listen, I'm gonna describe some more to you here. And just keep in mind, we don't need to try and concoct something to try and top this. We just need to receive this. This is something that there's no possible way you and I would ever uh, create on our own. He says to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Just picture this in the eternal kingdom. There was a picture of, um, you have water just rushing through Eden, which was this sign of abundance, this sign of provision, this sign of life. I mean, we get it a little bit now, but like back then, civilizations didn't just pop up and they're like, oh, there happens to be a big body of water here. Like they would set out to try and find rivers and, and uh, lakes and things so they would have, it was, it was absolutely vital for their life. This is why when Moses, uh, remember, um, the Nile gets turned to blood, it wasn't just like, oh, that was a neat trick. It was like, this is devastating now to us because we rely on that for everything. When they would go somewhere, uh, the first thing they would do is they would try to dig a well to try and make sure there was water there. They'd be like, well, we're not gonna live here. Let's go someplace else. It was absolutely vital. And he describes heaven as this place of the thirsty will drink, I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. You can just picture this spring that is just gushing with water and it's free. The most important thing in life He's saying is provided for. Then he describes the city in the most breathtaking way, but then he gets to answer this question. A lot of this was in Eden, but it failed. Sin entered. Uh Uh-oh. Is that the same thing going to happen there? And he's going to say, no way. Look at verse 12. John is getting this image again of the eternal state, and he says, I had a, uh, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the uh, gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the Son of Israel were inscribed, and on the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, on the west, three gates, and the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Here's what he just saw. He's seeing this place, and the question is, uh uh-oh, is evil going to be able to enter? And then he gives the most paradoxical statement, which is um, these huge high walls, which is an image of safety and no evil is ever going to enter here. And then angels guarding the gates, which in case you missed the big high walls, he's saying evil is not going to be able to enter here. But then it's the oddest thing because in that day you would just have one big gate that would open and that was it. So the only thing you had to watch was that one gate. And he says, there's 12. Three facing this way, three facing this way, three facing this way, three facing this way. And so it's just this paradox of just seeing the high walls and the angels that are guarding it. And then you just see gates all over. And then it'll say in just a minute, and they're just open all the time. He's saying evil cannot enter 
this place. I'll show you some more here as well. He goes into all these precious jewels that he sees. And in verse 22, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Every place they go, God was there. He could, they could worship him. And then you see, remember, in the beginning, we needed a sun and the moon. We needed their light. And now what you're going to see is we don't because God, we don't need their light. God is the light. He says, verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates, here it is, will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. You catch that? You're supposed to have one gate. Instead, they've got 12, 3, 3, 3, 3 which is not a really good defense system, except what he's saying is there's no night, which is this, um, it kind of has a double meaning, this picture of evil. There's no evil there, he's saying. And he's saying all these gates are gonna be wide open just during the day, but it's day all the time. There's no night. That's why I'm saying you've got all these gates and they're just wide open and you can just see the confidence and security to have to say evil cannot enter. This is not just a better, this is not just Eden redone, kind of like let's take two and let's see if we do it right this time. This is Eden, this is um, restored, but this is enhanced. This is Eden with the good stuff, but even better stuff, and then we know evil can never, ever enter. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's not some sort of tenuous perfection. It's gonna stay that way, it is certain. And listen to this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, you should remember that from Genesis, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the blessings of heaven. We have this gospel message about what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And for those that respond in faith, this is what awaits. So think about this. You have this recreation in a sense. You have perfect fellowship with God that can never ever be broken. You have God dwelling there. God is the temple. There's no tears, no mourning, no wailing, nor crying. There's no, there's no reason to worry. There's nothing to cry about. So much peace will be there that there's a city with high walls, angels guarding it, but there's never, ever any enemies. So the gates are open all day. The sun and the moon, we actually don't know if they're gone is what he's trying to say. What he does seem to say is you don't even need their light. 
Because God will be there. God will be the light. The sun and the moon, the light is for us now, but we won't need that later. And then he says we will reign forever and ever. And we can be certain of this because he is the eternal one. And he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he says this is trustworthy and true. And it is. So a question. What ails you right now that won't be remedied then? What ails you now that won't be remedied then? Because whatever it is, is going to be remedied then, except maybe I didn't explain it very well, and so maybe, maybe you're going, I don't know if my thing. But the idea is the things that ail us now are because that we live in a world that is stained by sin and stained by the fall, and there's a perfect heaven that awaits us. And so what ails us now will be remedied then. So two quick comments. One is um, this is the future that the Bible promises for Christians. And in a room this size or people watching online, I, I, don't, I don't know that everybody here is a Christian. I don't know if everybody has received the gospel, if everybody here trusts Jesus Christ and what he has done. Um, there's some scriptures in here that, would, that speak pretty specifically, but I didn't want to say them exactly without any kind of explanation. And so I, I will just clarify to say this is the future that awaits Christians. Um, <clears throat> it can seem in our culture, and someone is probably like, oh, this was really good. Why'd you have to go and say that? You were talking about all the good stuff. Why do we have to go and, and bring us all down? And here's the reason. Is I realize by saying something like this, that especially in our world today, it could be thought to be unloving. It can be thought to be closed-minded. It can be thought we're some little special clique, whatever it is. A very big clique, I guess I would say, of billions of us. But um, consider this an act of love. Because I don't think it's loving to say as much as heaven awaits the Christian, hell awaits the lost, and to say let's just ignore that other part. What I want you to hear today, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this can be your future as well. By declaring him Lord and Savior of your life, by receiving the gospel, by understanding what he has done for you, yes, even you. Amen. And if you're a Christian, there's a verse I, I jumped over pretty quick I want to go back to. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is him getting the image of, um, of heaven. So it was April 24th, 1999. There we go. April 24th, 1999. And Nikki still looks great. I don't know what happened to me, but um, that is, uh, that's us. I guess we're, I don't know what that is. Anyway, she picked out the picture. But that's after our wedding. Um, and, uh, and before the wedding, we were, we were some of the last ones of our friends to get married. And um, all my buddies said, all right, here's what's going to happen, Jim. You're going to be doing, you're going to be playing it really cool. And then as soon as the doors, we had to, the doors were straight back. As soon as the doors open up, you're Stomach's going to get butterfly-y, your legs are going to get weak, and you're going to start crying because the impact of the moment is going to hit you. And I was like, not me. 
I had all these ridiculous plans about how I was not going to cry. I had a song in my head that's the most preposterous song, I'm not gonna tell you what it is, for a bride to walk down the aisle to that I was gonna start playing in my head. So I'd be like kind of smiling and laughing, picturing it and no one else knew about it. You know, she's walking down the aisle. So I had all these plans because I was like, no matter what, I'm not gonna get weak in the knees. I'm not gonna get butterflies in my stomach. I'm not gonna cry. And they also said the other thing that's going to happen is everybody is going to look at her and go, oh, beautiful. And then they're going to go and look at me to see what my reaction is. And I was like, it's fine. I'll be fine. I was not fine on the day. We, everybody was walking down and they all did their thing and we had the processional stuff and everybody walked in. And then I'm standing here and the, the flower girl came and she did the little the things and then, and then the doors shut and the organ stopped, and it probably had stopped for four or five seconds, and it felt like an hour of just sitting here, like, just taking these deep breaths. And then all of a sudden, the doors opened, and there's Nikki with her dad walking her down the aisle. And the organ started playing. I, lo- I was going to sing my stupid song in my head. I'd lost it. I couldn't do it while something else was going on. And so I'm just, all of a sudden, I'm just sort of out of it. My knees started shaking a little bit. My stomach got a little queasy. And everybody <gasps> looking at her and then <gasps> looking back at me. And I was a mess. I tried. I have um, also had the privilege of performing several weddings, being the minister at several weddings. And my vantage point when I'm the groom is usually right over here somewhere, and my vantage point as the minister is usually right about here, almost the exact same place. And I have seen some lovely, lovely brides come down the aisle. I have not once gotten weak in the knees sick to my stomach and started crying when I've seen one of them walk down the aisle. It only happened once. In fact, that would be a little odd if I did have that reaction <laughs> when another bride walked down the aisle, if I just, just passed out or something. What's the difference? When the bride I described at first walked down the aisle... I was looking at her very differently because she was for me. When John gets this glimpse of the new heaven and new earth, don't just see it as, wow, how pretty. John is looking at it with joy and saying, that is mine. That is for me. That's the hope that Christians have. That's the hope of the gospel.